Hello, and welcome to the Plugged In Podcast, where we talk with founders and CEOs in order to bring you the real stories of failures and triumphs, highs and lows they've experienced on their journey toward success. We will go in-depth with our guests to give you insights into how they have taken an idea from concept to realization, making those first key hires to building the right team, scaling revenues, how they overcame obstacles, and much more as we learn how they achieve success. This is the podcast that you want to subscribe to if you want to learn how to succeed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Plugged In. I'm Ellie Mandelbaum, your host and industry veteran who decided to do more than just sit and listen to podcasts, but actually decided to start one where I interview people much smarter than me. In this episode, we are speaking with Oriel Ohio, a former VC, angel investor, former founder, current founder and CEO of KZN, and also a family partner of one of the bigger VC funds in France called... ISI Gestion? You like. <laughs> okay. I, it's French, so excuse me for that. Fine. But with that, you know, Oriel, thank you for taking time to speak with us today. And why don't we start with this? Give us a little bit more background. I just, you know, pretty much gave a quick, you know, overview. But in a few minutes, just give us a little bit of background from, you know, where you started, how you got into the space, which was really early on. I think you were really in the space with LG Labs or even before that. Really, I mean, talking about Late th- night, you know, nineties, early two thousands. So let's start there, and then we'll work our way w- with that. So uh, uh, people don't see that because it's a podcast, but I've got white hair, <laughs> <laughs> and I've been tech for uh, nearly twenty years. Uh, I was there uh, since the first wave of the uh, of the dot com. Uh, back in the days, there was no smartphones at the time; it was only computers. And I created my first company there. Um, that was when I, I first got exposed to the internet. But prior to that, I actually had a career in non-internet companies. I worked for FNCG companies, large companies that make consumer good products you buy in supermarkets. This is where I learned marketing. And uh, then I came to, uh, to the internet. So I'm not an engineer by, by training. I learned business from a, a very well-known uh, business school in France. I also had a master's degree from a Spanish business school. But mostly got into marketing and definitely got in love with the internet and never left since then. And I've been basically for the past 15, 16 years bouncing between building companies and investing in companies. And uh, I, I love mom and dad. So you know, for me, it's like, you know, both parents uh, of, my, uh, of my career. And I think I will always do both. Uh, and I think I don't think I can lo- leave both. So I built companies in the first era of the web, uh, which was uh, which was sold later uh, to, um, to to uh, to another company, and then it took, allowed me to take some time off. I was at the time in France, and uh, I moved to Israel for a, a personal trip, and uh, I was uh, I found it spectacular, and I decided to make another trip, and was convinced. <laughs> I wanted to move there. That was 15 years ago. And so I made Aliyah. Mm-hmm. And at the time, the uh, landscape in the tech space was extremely different. There was maybe 10 internet companies worth talking about. And I landed working for one of them, which was ICQ, already bought by AOL. And I spent a couple of years there, um, enough time to understand that I was not it was not the right place for me. I wanted to, to be in the startup world. I knew that mm-hmm. already. But at the time, there was no many startups. And uh, it was the early days of blogging, if you remember. Yeah. So that was the years uh, 2004 or 2005, something like that. 
And I sound like um, old already. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right here with you. <laughs> exactly. So at the time, I still didn't have any white hair, but I was getting, uh, I was getting more experimented. And uh, so I got extremely passionate about blogging. Uh, so there was, you know, uh, also the early days of podcast, but mostly blogging. So that was, you know, the days of typepad and blogger. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously, I was like everyone interested in, in, in blogging. I was, you know, in, I discovered TechCrunch, which was like at the time, like maybe 6,000 readers or 3,000, yeah. like really, really small. So um, I, I got interested into contributing to it and actually co-founded um, one of their main uh, blogging activities, which became the French edition of TechCrunch, which very quickly became one of the largest publications online in France, uh, any category. So it became a real success. So I ended up managing both the editorial side, but also the business side, and it was very, very successful. And that got me to uh, to land into the venture capital world mm-hmm. here in Israel, something that I did not expect because I was not like, I didn't have the typical profile of a VC. <laughs> Which is good, by the way. That's not a, yeah. it's not a bad thing. Uh, well, that's what they told me. And so, uh, you know, someone very well-known in the industry, you know, trusted me enough, Danny Cohen from Gemini, trusted me to hire me and say, well, you don't have the typical profile of a VC, and uh, that's why we want to hire you. So apparently you, you have a you know you have you have a, a, an intuition for spotting interesting companies. That's what we're looking, and uh, so go, come do that with real money. And so um, we created the Internet Lab with Lightspeed Venture, mm-hmm. another fund that also was lending at the time in Israel. And I worked with Yoni Hefetz, who was uh, one of their managing partner. And we invested in a bunch of companies at seed level. And it was the early days of Web 2.0. So after the 1.0 that I knew, I landed 1.2.0, and um, there was the early days of Flickr and Delicious, and we said, oh, you know, let's see what happens in Israel. Apparently, there's a deal flow waking up. Maybe we should invest in some of those. So uh, I pretty much did all the mistakes that you can do when you <laughs> when you bet uh, uh, on a new company uh, and uh, basically uh, we invested like in a bunch of, of projects um, luckily some of which uh, became extremely successful some of which already exited and um, I, I really like the, the profession of investing in other companies in working with founders and being on the other side of the coin and um, so the program lasted it was initially supposed to be two years lasted three years and um, eventually I m- I've moved back to building a company which was called AppSfire mm-hmm. it is still called AppSfire still existing uh, at the time it was a recommendation engine for mobile apps uh, we funded it and uh, you know we pivoted multiple times it was a story of success and failure we can talk about uh, yeah uh, about it later, uh, but it was a very, very uh, strong roller coaster, and eventually the company was sold. And um, at the same time, I co-founded AppSfire. I co-founded Isai, which uh, is a Japanese word actually, not oh. a French word, <laughs> and it's a word that means um, uh, uniqueness and 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 excellence in Japanese. So it's a Japanese word actually, and we created uh, a very small fund, twenty million euro at the time, for backing inve- uh, entrepreneurs in France. What difficulties finding funding up to one million uh, euros, and so um, we, we we started with that program, and that became what is today, ten years later, one of the most successful funds in France, and we have multiple exits, multiple super startups funded, you know, some are billion dollar valuation, and uh, I'm a founding partner there. I'm uh, still involved in the investment committee, but it's a fraction of my time. Mm-hmm. And uh, now I'm back to building a new company, so, which I started working on a couple of years ago, but that is officially a company only a few months ago. And it's called the KZN, uh, KZN Networks, and we are building a mobile wallet in the crypto space. 
in a blockchain space, which nowadays is as much less hype than used to uh, a <laughs> few months ago. Yeah. But it's a fascinating space. And it's definitely the most interesting projects I ever worked on. And, uh, and that's it. So we're resuming the past uh, 20 years after a few years of, uh, you know, large corporation uh, stumbled into the internet, never left, left since then and bounced back between building and investing in companies and now full-time uh, CEO of, an, of a new company in the crypto space. Wow, that's a, that's actually a great, a great recap. So with that, you know, we're going to start backwards um, and then we'll move to the present day. So what was your first job that you had and what did you learn from it that stayed with you today, so if, the, if anything? The first job that I ever had was selling CDs in a shop. There we go. That, that's, <laughs> what, that's what I did. There's always a first, right? There's somewhere you could break your teeth. You know, one of the recent interviews I, I, I just did, he, he was like, okay, I worked for WorldCom, which is now defunct, and I was knocking on doors. And just selling. And I hated it. It sucked, but it got me out of my shell. So selling CDs, okay, so that was that. So I, at a retail store. At a retail store, it was no MP3 at the time. And <laughs> I was up all day on my feet because, you know, you have to be up, right? So if you've ever been in a Tower Records or equivalent or Chainvitz, this is the equivalent of that in France. And I was I was actually pretty good at it. I was, I was you know, because I'm a musician. I was giving very, uh, very insightful musical advice to people who didn't know what to buy, but just wanted some music. And because I have a wide range of tastes, I, I could do that. So I, I, I enjoyed the direct contact with consumers. I guess this is where the direct to consumer, um, uh, virus always hit me. I always been in businesses that were direct to consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, I always also like music. So, uh, for me it was, you know, another way to sing the world that I loved, but on, from the business side. And, uh, but very quickly, you know, obviously that was not going to scale. Uh, and that was slow, too slow for me. I wanted something that moves faster. So that was not like the real job. That was a real time. Yeah. I, first time I worked. The, the first real job is I worked at a company called uh, Rekit Bankizer, which does a lot of consumer products you find in supermarkets. Mm-hmm. Uh, they sell you toiletry products, uh, cleaning products. Uh, I worked for a product called um, Airwick, which is like a toilet freshener. It's still around, I think. Yeah, it's absolutely it's a, it's around. A, it's, it's a, a, it's a, it's a, a huge brand. Yeah. It's a global brand. <laughs> and I work with world-class people. I learned everything about what you need to learn about how you build a brand. And now you market that to people uh, in the real world. It was really useful and I really loved it. And um, and then after that, I worked for a, a company that does food products called Danone. So the oh, yogurt. Also, also a huge CPG company. Yeah, CPG. I worked in Spain, actually. My first job was in the UK. I, then I worked in Spain. So I speak fluently uh, also in Spanish. <laughs> actually, also Catalan because it was in Barcelona. So that's five languages I, I count. Yeah, I can also speak Spanish. So I have a few languages in, uh, under my, my belt uh, that I can, I can use. Uh, and of course, Hebrew. And so um, so that was also a great job. I really like, liked it. But again, those companies had always a problem is that they were way too slow for me. And, and I'm not a patient person. Mm-hmm. So I had to move to something that was going to move to move faster. So I didn't know yet that the internet would help me to do that. But when I first discovered the internet, it was like a revelation. And um, the second I used an email, I said, wow, this is amazing. I want to be on the other side of that. I don't know how this works. I don't know anything about it. Yeah. But I know someday I'm going to be there. And a few years later, um, I, I created this company with a few friends, completely naive, uh, zero knowledge about everything. To be frank, surfing a hype because everyone was thinking yeah. about building a startup and got uh, major walls down the road. 
um, but we eventually managed to survive and, so, and sell the company. But there was a great learning school. So it was like, I always say I have two degrees, you know, my official <laughs> MBA and, and, official and that one, yeah. which was like, uh, you know, uh, uh, hardly earned. <laughs> and so, um, so this is how I really, really restarted. And so is there anything that stuck with you? You were talking about the, the marketing, understanding the consumer perspective. Is there something that really like you, that, that stayed with you throughout all your companies and all your, you know, all, all the different, your journey, you know, your career? Uh, the, the, the first most important learning is that you, you cannot bullshit consumers. You cannot bullshit people. You can do that maybe for a fraction of time, but not for very long. Quality really matters in what you do. So the quality of a, of a service, of a product really matters. And that starts with the way you build your company. So the, the product is the result uh, the shining result of how you build your company, meaning who you hire, what type of investors you've in, what kind of culture you're building, what type of processes. And the consequence of all of that is going to be uh, your product. And when your product doesn't shine, the consumer feels it. He doesn't know how the recipe of the sausage works, but he knows the taste and you cannot fake that. So um, the, the, the learning is when you're building something, you have to build it with an obsession for quality. And in the consumer space, there is no room for second players. You cannot last very long if you have a consumer product that is only okay. You have to, be, to go for excellence. And that is extremely hard, in particular, the, as you grow, right? So mm -hmm. it's, it's a rather easy at the beginning because you're not exposed to many users. But the more you grow, the more the market becomes competitive, the harder it is to keep this, this level of quality. So that means that it's really hard behind the scene to keep your quality built for quality, meaning hire always the base people, being extremely diligent about the processes that you have, um, making sure that you have a, 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 a consistent and homogeneous co company culture and all that serving the consumer. And that's, that's incredibly hard. And you only realize that as you build it, you, you cannot anticipate that. So the only thing that I would say was important to me is to always be aware, have a level of awareness of what you do in terms of quality. And that's really, really important. Oh, that, that's, uh, that's, that's good to know. And I couldn't agree with you more. Quality is definitely the way to keep your product and company going. Bad quality leads to unhappy users. Unhappy users, pretty much, you're doomed. Correct. And, and so that means also, and this is the other side of the coin, is that you have to be extremely aware of failures, right? So, so you, you, yeah. you will fail. It's guaranteed no matter what you build. And so the, the, your thermometer for quality is the same as the thermometer for failure. So yeah. you need to know when you, something is wrong and correct that. Which is a great segue to my next question, which is the first thing that you failed at <laughs> and how did you learn? Um, and Betty, I know you were saying, you know, the first startup you had, you had a lot of challenges and then you were able to exit. So I understand that you were really a novice. You jumped in without really understanding the, the gravity of what you were trying to build. But, you know, you know, through that, you know, how, you know, you apparently did stumble. So how did you get back up and what did you learn from it? Oh, the, the biggest error we did at the time was surfing the hype and not anticipating that uh, a correction would happen. And that's something that uh, resonates extremely well with me today <laughs> in the crypto space. I learned my lesson, but basically we spent, we, we raised money and we spent and we behaved as if um, nothing happened, not anticipating that a major correction would come up. 
And so we nearly came to death and uh, we were lucky to have investors. So our first investor was Ubisoft. It's a very well-known video game producer mm -hmm. uh, that um, basically uh, put more money in the company because they believed in us and they believed in the project. But basically we made the mistake that many entrepreneurs do is that uh, you are blind to what you're doing. You are extremely bullish. You believe in your project, but you don't anticipate that at some point an accident can happen, a market accident, not something that you control and that can change everything. So in our case, it was it was two things. There were, the adoption of the internet was going to be way slower than everyone was anticipating. And number two, the marketing dollars that were supposed to come flowing, investing into the space for advertising did not come at the speed that people anticipated. It was basically other startups paying ads for other startups, mm. but not like real advertising yeah. dollars. And so that hit the wall for the industry and everyone everyone suffered from it. So we were lucky to have an investor to that, that saved us. And then we were after that way more lean, way more disciplined, um, in particular in the way we're generating real money, real value for the market. And um, and and eventually uh, we managed to to sell the company. It was not a great success, to be frank. It wasn't. It was an okay success, enough for us to take some time off and to think about the next chapter. Well, cool. um, I mean, correct, but it's all relative to to you know dying a slow death. The, it, uh, the alternative that, was going today. I, you know. I mean, so so you you were really able to say, okay, you know what, we screwed up. We decided to really focus now, become lean you know, double down on what we have and then you were able to take that and that's a credit to you and your co-founders and able to, you know, say, okay, we're going to exit and someone actually wants to buy us, right? That's 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 yeah. that's a success. Again, it might not be as much a success as others, but that's still a quality, especially at the age you were at and being a first yeah, time. Yeah, we were very early and also I think at the time, I think 99% of startup like died. Oh yeah, I know I did. I had a startup in 99, 2000. And it died. It died a painful death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was painful. <laughs> and I, 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 same again with the hype. I mean, I, we we raised money on nothing. Right. It was an idea. It was literally we had an idea. We sold it. We got money, and it was it just no real. We had no no tech background. Right. And there's so many things that I would do different today than I did back then. But again, we it was all hype, right? You and people are like, oh, this and that, and you're trying to build it. But at the end of the day. If you don't really have a substantial product, it's not going to go anywhere. And, and it's okay to raise during the hype. There's nothing wrong with that. You just need to be extremely careful in how you Manage. are building your company yeah. around that and, you know, the drive that, you know, the thing that motivates you to do that. And, you know, there is always this kind of, you know, debate like, are you a missionary, you know, or a mercenary, right? <laughs> so uh, missionaries versus mercenaries. Yeah. And, and, you know, building a company is not for sprinters. It's really for marathonians. You need to, to, to go for the long run. And so when you do that, you have to be extremely, at the same time, very aggressive, very bullish, but also very careful. And I think, it, you know, it should, it's, it's still a lesson that is worth uh, learning today. No, I hear that. So we're going to, you know, from there, you know, so you, you, you know, been a startup founder, then, then you went to the VC world, you angel investor, entrepreneur, you know, and this is before AppSfire even, yeah. right? This is yeah. just before AppSfire, you yeah. know, so how do you wear so many hats, right? Were you wearing all those hats? And then, you know, how do you do that? And then what made you say, okay, you know what, I want to get back into the startup or I want to become a, I want to found something, I want to build something. Like so so I, I'm, I'm a builder. I like to create thing, things. I'm, I've always like had this dichotomy in, in like schizophrenia, like, you know, am I like more an artist? Like, not that I consider myself an artist, mm -hmm. but I like to create things and, you know, like I said, I'm a musician. I love 
playing, I love improvising, I love composing and stuff like that. But also at the same time, I, I like to help, right? So for me, being an entrepreneur is, is, the, is the perfect world for this kind of personalities where you have at the same time the ability to, uh, to create, uh, but also, you know, to help, uh, to help the market, to help other people find a job. But also when you are VC, is, is you are on the other side of the coin. So you're helping other entrepreneurs build their stuff. Mm -hmm. the, the only thing is that when you're VC, it's fascinating. You, for, you work with the brightest people and you see everyone and you are persona grata everywhere and everyone wants to talk to you. The thing is that you're not building anything, right? So your added value is about supporting people who are building everything. And, and, and I was missing that. So really missing it. And I was, um, just put the context back, right? It was the early days of the iPhone and it was a defining moment that's in oh, the history so, of tech. Yeah. So that's 07. So 07 is when the iPhone came out. I Correct. was, just to give you an idea, I was with a company in 06 called Thumbplay. And they were doing ringtones. And ring, if anybody knows, you had to actually buy ringtones back then, right? You had flip phones, etc. iPhone came out and decimated the market, right? right? It revolutionized really technology in the sense that it's portable. Correct. Not not the Palm Pilot, you know, not the BlackBerry. The iPhone did it. Yeah. Okay, so it, it was a defining moment, and you know, the same way the um, internet came in and, you know, services like Yahoo and AOL and Lycos were defining moments for the first era of the internet. Um, the iPhone was going to be that. And I felt that extremely strongly the first second I got it in my hands. And I said, there is no way on earth I, you know, I'm going to miss that. I, I missed the first one, right? <laughs> and I yeah. jumped in with the wrong, uh, with the wrong, uh, both intention, but also with the wrong attitude. And I, I want to do something in that space. And I could not let that go. So uh, at some point, I played with a few ideas, but the strongest that stick with me uh, was the, the, the idea of AppSphere. So it started like a side project. I was still, you know, I was still a VC at the time. Uh, we made a bunch of great investments. Um, but, but the idea of uh, building a foundation layer in that defining industry was for me uh, super important and I wanted to be part of it. So at some point... Uh, I had I made two hard decisions. The first one is I decided to stop being a VC, which is an extremely comfortable life. <laughs> uh, and for those yeah. who don't haven't tried to being a VC, I do recommend it. It's very uh, restful and very uh, very uh, very good. Uh, <laughs> and the second hard decision is at the same, at this time I was also um, I was part of the TechCrunch network and I was uh, I was a shareholder of TechCrunch. I was running a lot of operation and everyone wanted to talk about uh, about TechCrunch, wanted to read on TechCrunch, wanted to be part of TechCrunch. And I was like up there and I decided to stop that too. I decided that this is not for me. I want to come back to build something that is really mine and not from, for someone else. And, you know, for all the great things TechCrunch brought me, I wanted to, to be back to myself. So I had to get a step back completely from there, from up there, uh, down, and then, down to zero. That was, that was a very big media yes. company back then. Yeah. I mean, you, were, you, could have been, you could have been a totally... Yes. I mean, the media empire really, I mean, eventually bought by AOL, but 
you know, TechCrunch, even today, was a massive. Yeah, it was an industry must read for anybody you know, in the, that wants to know what's going on. Like, you know, some, I mean, there was even the mythology that if you got on TechCrunch, you can get VC money, right? <laughs> it, was, it was not true. It was yeah. a myth that was around that there was the TechCrunch effect. Like, you yes. get on TechCrunch and you get a spike right. of traffic. That's not that good anymore because there is more competition, there is more media. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's true that people read, but not everyone clicks. And so, <laughs> So um, it was really hard for me to get from up there to to zero, but I really wanted to build something, and you know the the side of building took the better part of me. So I, I came to that, and we started a side project. At some point, we realized it could be a company, and so we raised some money. We raised a, a seed round later on, a Series A, mm-hmm. and we built a company between Israel and France. R and D was in France. Here was the uh, the uh, do you product have a, business. Do you have a co-founder? I had a co-founder in France. France. Okay, and we built the company, and it was a company that came to uh, last for until we we got acquired for six or seven years, and um, it, it came nearly to a death moment. I will talk about it later, um, and and so um, and we recoup, we recouped from that. But it was a fascinating, uh, also uh, project, and I like to call that a, a success of or su- a story of success and failure, um, from which I learned a lot. And at the same time, I co-founded uh, Isai. So I'm, I'm not alone there. There this we is, were five is, co-founders. This is, this is what this 2000 2006. So you, no. I mean, you you co-founded a, a VC fund. Mm. At a really difficult time, it was. Terrible. It was. Terrible. It was a really bad. Day. I mean, mm-hmm. 07 was just a crash, mm-hmm. and and you and you you so you raised a fund then, and it thrived. It just didn't like yeah. you know. Usually, you know, the, the best projects, some of the best projects, get created at moment of crash, you know. And we'll talk about crypto, but that's why I'm extremely bullish about this current period because I think this is the seeds of any you know something great that's going to come. And that was true about venture capital, actually, not just us, but if you look at today's landscape in the venture world, uh, some of the best performing world uh, funds were not there uh, 10 years ago. Uh, not the typical Sequoia, Kleiner, and, you know, uh, funds that you have on Silicon Valley were funds that were not even on the radar, they were not even created. And so we arrived at that moment. And I, we co-founded was small, small fund, and um, the the identity of the fund was interesting. It was a fund composed of entrepreneurs and only of entrepreneurs. So mm-hmm. we were about fifty people who contributed their own money. We were five co-founders to run it. Uh, we brought in uh, a CEO to run it, like extremely um, uh, educated mm-hmm. uh, VC to, to 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 run it. But the the money which typically comes usually from pension funds and uh, you know institutional LPs. He was coming from entrepreneurs. And that's what helped us differentiate. And now uh, the, the latest uh, fund that we uh, we raised is a 150 million euro fund. And it's, a, it's a still majority of money coming from entrepreneurs and some are institutional LPs. And uh, we've invested in over 30 companies. We've got like nearly six or seven exits. Wow. Um, and our all, most all, 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 all French-based companies? or not, not just French. Okay. Now we have also uh, an operation in the US. So we have investments in the US. We have investment in the UK. We sold to international companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, the, uh, and the most famous investment we've done, actually that was my first uh, contribution to the fund. It's called BlaBlaCar, which is a, by far the most popular ride-sharing company in Europe. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk about Uber yeah. and Lyft, but you know, in, in Europe, BlaBlaCar Blah, Blah, Blah. shines by far. 
in particular in, in Eastern Europe, in Russia and in France. And, um, and you know, when we invested at the time, it was like, you know, sub 10 million, something like pre-money valuation. And today it's a unicorn. Yeah. So it was a very successful investment. And then you, were you their first money? Yes. Wow. Yeah, we were the first first check. So what what made you, again, as a collective, but let's say you had a collective putting money in, but you had a managing team of looking at investments. What made you say, well, this is going to, you know, this is what we want to put in. This is a, worth taking a chance on well, as a first investor. Well, to be frank, we no, none of us had, like none of us had any idea would become so big. Like, okay. uh, there was no way on earth. Uh, what we felt though is that there was um, historical sense to their idea that the, the idea of sharing a ride with someone else was going to become relevant because ownership of a car um, makes less and less sense and it's less and less accessible to more people. So so we knew about that kind of just trend of the market. That's mm. number one. Number two, uh, I, I just completely connected with the team. I found them extremely um, uh, relevant for the ID, extremely passionate about it, very humble, hardworking, and it was also a bet on the, on the team. Um, and the rest is uh, the rest is history. And since then, it's been you know raising. I think I, I can't remember the number, but more than two hundred million dollars in capital. And uh, they just actually acquired a subsidiary of the national railway company in France <laughs> um, that was trying to compete with yeah. them. And so now it's like just a, a rocket ship and wow. um, fantastic company. And, we, uh, and so to be frank, I'm not running the day-to-day yeah. operation. There is a fantastic team doing that. I just you know, was part of the first money of the fund and part of the weekly investment committee. Sometimes, you know, I'm participating board members and things like that. Uh, so I'm, it's not my day-to-day operation. Uh, my job at the time was to help co-founding that. Yeah. And um, my time was to AppsFire, actually. Yeah. So, uh, you know, going back to AppsFire, right? So, you know, starting out, right, you know, I, you know, iPhone. You know, the iPhone came out in '07. You know, it's really people are just really stunned and fascinated by it and the ease of use, etc. Um, you know, did you raise? Did you raise funds for it? You raised. I think you said you raised a small round first. Yeah. So we raised first a million dollars, and that was from a VC friend. It was Angel. from a. It was from a VC. Yeah. Was it easier that you already had? You know, a foot in the door to raise the funds, or did you have to go through the whole? You know. Dog and pony show. It, it was easier, I would say. It was not easy. I would say it was easier because I already had name. Actually, the funds came from French funds. Okay. Uh, we had Israeli VCs interested in investing, but we preferred to raise from from French funds for many reasons. And so it got me access to um, many doors uh, easily. But then, you know, the deal making was, I would say, not different from any other person. You know, when someone invests, they want to have the best deal. And when you are an entrepreneur, you want to leave as less capital on the table to uh, to your investors, mm-hmm. you know, so there's always this kind of prompt of friction, but that was okay. And then, you know, uh, we moved to uh, we moved to building the company after that. Actually, the building what took place before raising raising the funds, we had already some traction. We are already a name in the industry. What we were building, just for the uh, people to understand, is that there was you know this great iPhone, and it was the early days of the App Store with like a few thousand of apps. And what we anticipated is that there would be a major, major trend of people stopping building websites and building apps instead. Mm-hmm. And if they did, uh, there would be two problems to solve, which actually to, to, to the same problem is developers will need to find users yeah. and users will need to find great apps. Yeah. So we wanted to build a recommendation engine for mobile apps. Mm-hmm. And um, 
and we wanted to become the, the Google for, for mobile apps. So uh, we did that extremely successfully uh, until Apple changed the rules of the game that did not allow this category to exist. Uh, so we had to change to something else. So, that, that, so, the, die. <laughs> so, so the pivot. So this is that's another uh, question. So, yeah. so this is the pivot. So walk me through the pivot. So Apple changed their their algorithm. Now you had to pivot again. Right. And how do you you know re, re, in a sense rebrand yourself? So it, it was it was really really hard because you know uh, first we were growing extremely fast and we were like in the millions of users already. Uh, we were post Series A. We were already a team of close to thirty with two offices and. Um, we were already known in the market for what we do, and we were probably the best in place. Like everyone was trying to do something like that, but we were probably the best recommendation engine in the market. And um, one day, so I was also moving to the US, so I was just arriving, mm-hmm. relocating from Israel to the US to, um, to boost the activity. And uh, a week after I arrived in the US, received a phone call from Apple saying, you have to stop what you're doing. <laughs> And I said, uh, holy crap. It's not that we did not expect that, but it was very, very uh, brutal when it arrived because yeah. it forced us to rethink completely what we were to do. So the difficulty was not about finding the idea because the idea was pretty clear, was pretty obvious what, 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 you know, what we could become. Uh, actually, the alternative was actually to shut down. Mm. The activity was just to shut down and yeah. give back the money to the investors. But since I was already in the US and we had this idea and we felt we could execute it well, we had to sell it and we had to sell it at two levels. First, we had to sell it to our investors. Number two, we had to sell it to our employees. Yeah. And then we had to sell it to the market. And so uh, when people think pivot, they, are, they, are, you know, they always say, oh, yeah, they changed the ID. It's not that simple. It's simple. No, it's not that simple. And the, the further you go down the life of the company, the more you have to work it to make it acceptable. Mm-hmm. And you have three levels of acceptability. The, the, the last one, which usually is the easiest to me is, is the market responding well to your pivot? But before that, you have to sell it to your, first to your team. They have to, to you have, first you have to sell it to yourself. You have to absolutely yeah, believe yeah. in it at the same strength as, as the original ID. Then you have to sell it to your co-founders and then you have to sell it to your employees. And then you have to sell it to your board and then you have to sell it to your investors. <laughs> and all that kind of sell-off or sign-off process before launch of a pivot announcement of a pivot when you see that on TechCrunch, the pivot, whatever, is usually extremely difficult, painful, and not easy because it's all about your power of conviction and it's about uh, um, resetting the counters. Yeah. Imagine that a whole company has been directing to from point A to point B in such a way, in such a methodology, in such like a muscle and, and, and uh, using such muscles and then you have to say, well, let's stop that and do something instead. So we did that and uh, passing you through the uh, details, yeah. uh, we changed the direction to uh, building a native ad um, ad network so it was a like, format of advertising that yeah. were not like typical banners and pop-ups yeah. but something that was integrated in the experience of a mobile application and we find very quickly very strong traction it was extremely resonating it was very well resonating with the market and we got very quickly interest from both developers but also companies wanting to acquire us and so uh, so we transformed uh, a, a close to death event mm-hmm. Uh, or trigger for for death to an opportunity and um, and that was that was feeling great so which, so which which is great but and that's what I, you know one of the things that people don't realize is just because you hit a roadblock and it could be a really big roadblock you just have to think a little bit outside the box dig deep 
and you can still succeed. It just it doesn't mean you're going to just close up shop. It doesn't mean you're going to fail. It just means that, you know what, it's a little bit harder to get to where I want to be. Um, and I give you credit, too, because a lot of people don't even mention selling to their team. It's they just, really hard. You know, they just say, you know what, we pivot and the team will follow. But if you really no, want to pivot well, you would need to get everybody behind it to really, yeah. you know, believe in it. Because right. in the end of the day, that's when the customer, right. the developer. And, and remember know. what I said at first is the product is the result of what you, is, is the result of the ingredients of what is behind the product, meaning the people that are building it. So if we did not convince the, the, the team to do that, uh, it was going to. So we had to basically interview one on one every single employee, explain them what we want to do and make sure they are on board and if they were not it was okay for them to leave and we had to do that for a period of uh, about two to three weeks and was really 100% of my time to do that so yeah. it's not like it's not like uh, you know you've got a magic wand and boom and, you know this is this people yeah. is arriving well, that's, I give you a lot of credit so let's uh, let's jump you know to today present day right crypto right you know I think everybody who's listening to this should know what crypto is. And they're definitely seeing a course correction in crypto. I think uh, Bitcoin is at, I think it's the lowest it's been in years. Um, why why crypto? Why are you so excited about the space? Um, I am excited about this space. So, so let's start first about how I got to it. So when I moved back from the US to Israel, I was looking for an ID. I couldn't find anything that really excites me. I advised a couple of companies to launch, to raise money and everything, but I could not, I could not find myself into either joining them or even uh, anything, any idea that was going to excite me. And I discovered a podcast, <laughs> talking about podcasts, uh, about an interview of um, Naval Ravikant by Tim Ferriss. And okay. uh, sorry, uh, about Nick Zabo, which is one of the fathers of crypto, invented the smart contract expression uh, by Tim Ferriss. And I realized that with crypto, um, I didn't come through it through Bitcoin. I came through it through Ethereum, that you could buy applications okay. that could not be stopped, where you would not be have a central point of decision, of ruling that can control the death or the life of an application. And for me, coming from AppsFire, where I've actually seen nearly death, <laughs> uh, near death uh, experiment, and for me, that was like a, a you know, defining moment. And it was the same way I had an iPhone in my hand 10 years earlier. And I said, wow, this is a defining moment. This is going to change everything. For me, realizing that, I know, of course, at the time I was naive. I had to learn about it. But if this is true, this is a defining moment for the history of the Internet. Because what you realize is all those big platforms, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Apple, right? They want developers, but at the same time, they will have zero hesitation in killing them if it conflicts with their agenda. And we've seen that over and over again. Twitter has killed nearly every single Twitter apps. Facebook has killed every single gaming Facebook, etc. Every time there is a conflict, they will kill them. And so I said, you can, developers cannot live like that. They need, they need another set of rules. And that, for me, that was... The, uh, the defining moment. What I realized down the road is that the, the crypto industry was not so much about building apps you cannot stop, but about redefining the notion of trust. And if you, you think about that, our whole society is built around the, 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 the necessity that you need to trust a third party so that you can live a peace, uh, with peace of mind in your day to day, right? You know, you trust your mayors and you trust your politician that they're going to govern you in the best interest. You trust your bank, they're going to mm -hmm. keep your money. You trust your lawyer, they're going to defend you. You trust your whatever, etc., etc. And for me, coding that in a way that was going to be transparent and that where there wouldn't be a point of failure or a point of decision that can basically censor you or censor anything was going to be a game changer for the ways 
society is organized. So the fundamental was there. And for me, um, the important application of that was going to be able to build financial applications where the user becomes in control and there is no, uh, there is fairer rules than what there are today. So unlike many people that I believe that, you know, crypto is going to kill everything and there's going to be a new world, I think what it's going to do instead is introducing a new set of uh, defining rules that are going to force current institutions, current governments, current regulators, current bank, current financial uh, organization to be to become more efficient, more transparent, and uh, play more in the favor of the user. Uh, and today we see that over and over again that this is not the case. There are frauds all the time. We pay fees. We don't know why. Uh, your your bank account is sometimes frozen. Sometimes you don't have access to bank account because you are like this or you are like that. And so there are many, many situations and in certain countries it's even worse um, where uh, a new set of rules is required. So I believe crypto can do that. Now, that being said, this is a very, very, uh, we're talking about a long period before this happens, right? So people have anticipated that this would happen happen overnight. Mm. Um, People tend to forget that Bitcoin was born 10 years ago out of the prior financial crash. There was no direct correlation, yeah. but that was the timing. Um, and last year, everyone got into the crypto world because it was thinking like, yeah, that's it. It's going to happen now. Well, guess what? It was not going to happen now. It's probably going to happen in the next decade or maybe the next 20 years because things take time to change. And the human is not designed to adopt change at more than a certain speed. We saw it with the internet. It took 20 years to have a YouTube and a Facebook and everyone with a computer and a mobile phone. And it will take about the same amount of time. So I was, for me, realizing there was a defining moment in the financial uh, world. I wanted to be part of that. And uh, I wanted to be part of that for the long run. So I was not going to go for a sprint. So we took our time. We built the technology for two years. Mm-hmm. We raised funding um, this year. We announced it four, year, four months ago. It was actually a good moment to, uh, to, to do that. And we will launch early next year uh, our product. Okay, excellent. And so your vision for, for Kazen is what? Is to be the biggest, the best? I mean, what, what do you see it in, in, in two or three years from now? So, so what we're building is a, is a crypto wallet. Uh, it sounds like something that has been built over and over again. There are already 200 wallets out there. And you know, a crypto wallet is basically a software uh, or a solution, not always a software, but that helps you keep your crypto assets. It can be coins, can be tokens, can be um, tokenized securities, it can be a smart identity, it can be a contract, it can be all sorts of assets, but basically it helps you to safeguard them instead of the, giving them to a third party that you trust, and typically a bank. And typically people buy those things in exchanges, things like Coinbase Mm. or Kraken or Binance. But uh, the history has proven that you want to own them because otherwise you trust a a central entity that can be cracked. And so you're losing the uh, ownership of your assets. So a crypto wallet is helping you owning your assets and, and securing them. So we're building that. We're building this kind of software. And what we, the value proposition we're going to bring to the market is that's going to be by far the simplest and the most secure uh, solution ever designed to date. Um, so you have all sorts of solutions today that are in the market. Some are safer, safer because they're hardware based. Some are, uh, um, some are easier because they are software based, but they all have a problem in common is that mm-hmm. they are very complex to the majority of users, including to those who are knowledgeable about crypto. And so uh, we, we are building something that is a step function better than anything that is existing today. 
And um, the vision is to build a, a gateway or a hub where people will come, um, will trust and will come to uh, do all sorts of financial operation from, uh, from the wallet. So we see the wallet as the home and the destination and the point of arrival of any crypto financial transaction. Uh, and, you know, what do you see in terms of your company, you know, composition? Are you looking to grow personnel-wise over the next year? Do you look at it being, do you want to go to 50 people? Are you looking at long-term or are you saying, okay, take it a year at a time, etc.? Look, I've, I've learned my lesson from the past. Mm-hmm. And so um, we, are, we are going to need to be patient mm-hmm. uh, and extremely disciplined into that, uh, into that phase. So what we are probably uh, going to so first we not go, we don't want to hire fifty people we mm-hmm. need to stay a small team for uh, a long period of time we just raised capital mm-hmm. uh, and so we're good with the amount of employees that we have right now we're going to be between ten to fifteen um, right. during the next couple of years mm-hmm. so it's going to be unless something changes into the nature of the industry that's going to be the size that we have so we're going to stay small and uh, and 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 and, uh, and lean until okay. until then. Uh, and what we are aiming for is we want to build for quality. So we want people to feel from the very first fraction of second that they have in their hand the best product. So that doesn't mean that we want to be the biggest. That doesn't mean we want to be to have the, the most people depositing assets into our wallet. We just want people to, once they try the product, to have a wow and a ha moment. Yeah. And, um, and this is our goal. So everything is done to optimize for that moment. And uh, obviously, we want to do that at a certain scale. So we have some goals about numbers and everything. We're building a brand. We're not building a service. So we're building a consumer brand that will be announced uh, next year with another name. It's not KZN. KZN is the name of the company. Uh, We are going to market it. It's a mobile application. So it's going to be on mobile first. And it's going to be designed for the mobile experience. It's very important to understand that. And it's not like a, a, a parallel with the desktop. And we're going to optimize for it being the best product in the market. So it's very, very hard. It's very sounds very arrogant because many companies and very well-funded have tried that. Self-confidence isn't bad. But we are, we've, tried, we've tried so many solutions and we came to the conclusion that it was still possible to do something that was better. So that's, that's what we're aiming for. Awesome. That was great. And, you know, we're going to wind down the, you know, the, the podcast now. Just a few more questions. So what did you want to be when you were 15? I always like asking this question. You know, when you were a teenager, you know, you had dreams, you had goals. What did you want to be when you were 15? Did you think you were going to be, you know, a founder, a builder, you know, angel investor, VC? You know, did you think you were going to, you know, what did you want to be when you were 15? I don't have a great answer here. I was, so, I was such a serious student. I was an excellent student. I was really... Uh, uh, excelling at uh, everything, and I'm not saying throwing myself flower, but the reason I was such a serious is because I had nothing else interesting in my life. I was living in a, su- a small suburb of Nice in France, and basically I had uh, either to study or become a delinquent. <laughs> so I was extremely good at studying, and that led me to to uh, to the best results and doing the best schools and everything. Um, and I was not really obsessed with uh, with career or I never really any dream. So I don't, don't have anything to tell you. All I knew was I wanted to do serious studies. And uh, I had w- that goal to get the best business school in France and I got it. Mm-hmm. So um, I worked hard for it. And um, that helped me get to the next to the next step. But uh, I... Uh, I was really obsessed with just being serious. <laughs> <laughs> Got that. Not, not a great answer, right? <laughs> no, it, it's, it's good. It's a solid answer and for everybody, all those kids out there, you know, study hard. Um, so did, was there a mentor that you had 
like, you know, going through all this, did you have someone that you called upon that you could, you know, ask questions, that you could get advice? Not really. Um, unfortunately, I did not have, have that. I mean, I had, of course, my great parents uh, that, that were always there and everything, but I didn't have that. And one of the things that I learned, which actually is still helping me today, was having this self-ability to question everything that you do. And that was never happy with the, the result and, and trying to always improve. And that helped, that has served me well until today. So um, I, I developed that at that age. So that, that's for sure. And, and uh, being self-aware of things we don't do great is a, a fantastic quality. Got it. I hear that. Um, is there a habit that you do daily that keeps you uh, organized on top of your your game, you know, that, that so, you could share? So there are two things that I do that are, for me, uh, very important for, for work, I'm talking. Yeah. Okay? The first one is I have a zero email inbox policy. So I, I answer extremely quickly to emails of very short answers and I ignore anything that doesn't matter. And I'm using also tools to filter through the noise of emails. Mm -hmm. so which I'm, tools do you use? I'm using Sanebox, for example, which helps you prioritize important emails with non-priority emails. Plus, mm -hmm. I use a lot of custom rules that I've learned to, de to design over time in Gmail yeah. to, uh, to basically unclutter my inbox. So... Uh, and this is extremely helpful and very disciplined about, about emails and having like close to zero emails every day. Um, the second thing that I'm doing is not really, it's not a productivity tool, but I'm running every day. So that's something that is new. I've, I've never done that before. I started two years ago with the, the goal of running a marathon next year. Uh -huh. So I've run two half marathon this year and next year I'm going to run a full marathon. And I'm going to do it. I'm determined that I will, uh, no matter how painful it's going to be, I'm going to do it. <laughs> but being able to run every day has helped me offload a lot of a uh, lot of unnecessary stress about clarifying my mind when I arrive to work. Usually, I run in the morning, and I I do what I like to call run and learn. So while I run, I also listen to podcast. So uh, I do both at the same time, and it's extremely helpful because it helps me both at the same time clarify. And, and be uh, offloaded from unnecessary mm -hmm. uh, problems and questions but, uh, and stress, uh, but also it helped me feed my brain with things that uh, I need to know. And so that goes to my last question, is what podcast do you listen to? Oh, I've got, I've got uh, too many. And with yours, now one more. Thank you for that plug. And so the top two that you like? My top two favorites. I like Masters of Scale. Okay. Uh, from Read, Read of Mind, absolutely fantastic podcast for entrepreneurs to, to learn about insights of what it takes to build uh, a great company. And it's extremely well produced. Uh, so I would recommend it to anyone. Um, the second podcast I like best, uh, I mean, I, there's obviously a lot of podcasts that I listen about crypto that are uh, really amazing. Um, the, the two that I would recommend uh, is one of the chain by Anthony Pompliano, which always has like great insights and great guests, and um, Unchained by Laura Shin, mm -hmm. uh, which is a very uh, sharp and insightful journalist, independent journalist that uh, interviews most of the people in the industry and never let go when there are hard questions to ask. Um, and there are others, but really those are the two that I like best. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Aurel. It was really a great learning and. Definitely uh, seeing some insights that you could share and uh, good luck. Thank you. Love this episode of the Plugged In Podcast? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. 
It's very much appreciated. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.